Well, a few weeks ago, we started the book of Revelation, going verse by verse through the entire book, and it's the Apostle John, the last of the 12 disciples alive, and he has uh, been exiled to this island, and Jesus came and gave him a vision, and Revelation chapter 1 is Jesus showing up. It's like an introduction to the book. And then Jesus begins to speak to John, and he gives them these instructions to pass out to his church. Uh, Specifically seven churches, but applicable to the whole church, uh, the universal church, all Christians. And that's chapters 2 and 3. But then in chapter 4, starting there on through the rest of the book of Revelation, John gets this vision about what's coming in the end of the world. And so he's going to do his best, as we're going to see, and I just want to preface that as we get into this prophecy in the rest of the book. John is doing his absolute best with first century vocabulary to describe what he is seeing in front of him. And it's through that, as well as it being uh, end-of-the-world prophecy, through which we're going to try our best to interpret what's going on. And so today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It's on page 1030, if you're using a Bible on your pew rack there in front of you. Um, Just grab that. And if you don't have a Bible, take that one home. Everybody needs one. You can have that Bible. But we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4. Remember, Jesus has been speaking to John, giving him these instructions about uh, uh, these churches And then John writes in Revelation 4, verse 1, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. A voice like a trumpet. Uh, Jesus spoke with a voice like a trumpet back in Revelation chapter 1. So we believe this is probably Jesus speaking of this. Uh, The things, I will show you things that must take place after this. Things that are future events, but things that also must take place before the absolute end of the world. Um, And you have this open door. An open door is an invitation, right? If you, I I remember one of my uh, neighbors, um, his policy at his house was if he's home, his garage door is open, which means the door inside the garage is unlocked. You can just come in. No need to go to the front door. You just walk right in, which is, was his policy also when we moved into the neighborhood. He just walked right in our house. Uh, didn't knock, no preface, walked right in and said, hi, can I, good to meet you. Uh, he brought brownies, so everything was okay. But this is the idea. The door is open. You can just come right in. It's an invitation to come right into heaven. So John's invited up into heaven, this image of an open door, to witness the vision he's going to receive, really, from the perspective of Jesus, as we're going to see here. Look at verses 2 and 3. So John says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So he was in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit 
overtook him. He willingly gave himself over to the Spirit, which is also an interesting phrase because back in Revelation chapter 1, John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So this, this image of being in the Spirit, this isn't like a, a perpetual state of being. Somewhere between Revelation 1 and Revelation 4, John stopped being in the Spirit. But being in the Spirit is, is allowing the Spirit to guide our actions and thoughts and words. And so John here is allowing, or is going with the Spirit wherever the Spirit's going to take him. It's what he's describing. And once I was in the Spirit, and he gets this vision of the throne room. A throne stood in heaven. It's, it's actually language similar to Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees a vision and sees the Lord seated on the throne. And we got these things here. He's, he who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Some translations say sardius. Uh, these are what we believe to be green and red stones, green and red jewels, gems. And again, remember, John's trying to describe what he's seeing, and this is the best he can come up with. He's looking right at the throne, and, and he's seeing these colors, and he's seeing this brilliance in front of him with this green and red. And then he sees around it, uh, around the throne, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So a green rainbow is completely encircling the throne of God. Kind of like, uh, you know, the rainbow was established when Noah uh, sailed on his boat, came to rest. God put the rainbow in the sky to remind us that he would never flood the earth again, um, <coughs> that the earth would never be destroyed in that way. And so we have, we have a, a rainbow here around the throne of God. This is like the, it's a complete rainbow. You know, a complete circle rainbow. You ever seen one of those before? This is what this is. All the way around, this is complete rainbow. And that it's all green, right? So it has the appearance of a regular rainbow in, in just the way it looks, but it only has one solid color encompassing the throne, the eternal covenant of God around his throne, and it's green. Uh, it's magnificent. It's God's glory flowing continually in the throne room. So John sees the throne and he looks around, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So after being overwhelmed by what he's seeing as the throne of God, John looks around and he sees 24 thrones all the way, you know, kind of around God's throne. And he sees people sitting on these thrones. Uh, he calls them elders, clothed in white garments. Now, there's lots of speculation in Scripture about, or in commentary about who these 24 guys are. Uh, some say it's the representative, like the, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples. Um, uh, but 24, actually, the number itself, 24, is used in several places in Scripture itself. Uh, in uh, where, here we go in. Uh, and for 24 priestly divisions from 1 Chronicles chapter 24, and for 24 divisions of worship leaders in 1 Chronicles 25, um, we get these 24 specifically. Um, and so to, to divide the 24 into two sets of 12, which there are times the number 12 is used a lot in the book of Revelation, uh, but this right here specifically does not divide it into two sets of 12. It specifically says 24. 
And so we have to take it like it says. So if it's saying 24, the 24 must mean something. And so I tend to side with the, the line of thinking uh, that goes along with the 24 priestly divisions and the 24 worship, divisions of worship leaders, uh, all of it pointing to worship. That these 24 on these thrones are representative of those worshiping God, as we're going to see in a minute, that they actually do. They're wearing white garments of victory. They're wearing crowns of victory. These, these, these crowns that they're wearing, the word they're used for crown is a wreath of victory, like in the Olympics in ancient times. Um, it's not the word used for a royal crown. So these aren't royalty that are around the throne. They're victors. And if you've been here the last several weeks, at the end of each one of these letters in, the first, in chapters 2 and 3, that uh, Jesus spoke to John. He said, let him who conquers sit down with my father on his throne. That's chapter 3, verse 21. So the image of there is you believe in Jesus, you conquer, you've made it to the end, you've been victorious. And so these 24 elders on these thrones, representative of that, people making it to the end, of, of worshipers making it, to the end, which is important because of what they're going to be doing. Uh, John, though, before he describes what they do, continues to look around the throne room. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So thunder and lightning are... are, are typically used to demonstrate the awe-inspiring power of God. I mean, if you, see thunder, if you see lightning and hear thunder, it's powerful in and of itself. But if you're standing, you know, a few feet away, and it's emanating from the throne all around you, it's powerful, it's mighty. Have you ever been near a lightning strike? Feel the electricity? Hear the massive thunder? It is un matched anywhere in the world. And so John is right there and lightning is shooting out and thunder is exploding all over the throne room. And then he sees seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, which we saw previously in the book of Revelation. Uh, that is a demonstration of the Holy Spirit, the complete Holy Spirit of God. Seven being the number of completion uh, there uh, in the throne room of God. Uh, now, this is also very significant. You know, the elders on their thrones, they are around the throne. But the Holy Spirit is before the throne. It, it is a proximity thing. It's a nearness to the throne. While the elders are around it, they're not in front of it. They're not right there, right up against the throne. The elders are not that as close as the Spirit because the Spirit is God. And as believers, we have the Holy Spirit within us giving us access to the throne of God, to God himself. Uh, look at verse 6. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes on front and behind. Now, before we get to these interesting creatures... You've got a, a sea of glass, a lot of glass like crystal making up the floor in front of the throne, which is very interesting uh, because glass in this day and time was usually 
opaque. Like it wasn't see-through. Uh, they just did not. It was very. It was a very complicated process, a very expensive process to get clear glass. So almost nobody had it, except for the uber wealthy and royalty. And so for there to be a sea of glass in front of the throne, it's that's what the floor is made out of. This, it, 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 that is what the flooring is all over the place. It's showing the uh, incredible power and wealth of God that he is unmatched in that area. No one can come close to what the Lord has there. Um, it could represent a lot of things, but we don't really know the representation here of the sea. Uh, some people suggest God's holiness. Uh, some people suggest a sign of royalty. Uh, some people suggest just... Uh, the, the elaborate nature of the glass itself. But we don't give an indication of that, so all we know is this is something that they did not have in the day, uh, something that, that only uh, sp certain specific individuals had, and never in this quantity. So there's something about God that no one else can come close to in this description of glass. But then, around the throne... You have four living creatures. That's just the best way he can describe it. Four living creatures. And these creatures have eyeballs all over them. Eyeballs all over their body. And it's important, again, because of their proximity to the throne, their closeness to the throne. Um, and they're going to have a specific role to play in the next few chapters of the book. But imagine you're seeing these creatures. And they don't just have two eyes. They've got hundreds of eyes all over their bodies. And the overwhelming nature of everything you're seeing in the throne, and then you see these weird-looking creatures with eyeballs everywhere. And look at how John describes the creatures. Verse 7. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And again, there's all kinds of descriptions about what this could possibly po mean. Uh, but there is a, a very popular rabbinic saying, rabbis would say from this day and time, um, that would say the mightiest of the birds is the eagle. The mightiest of the domestic animals was the ox. The mightiest of the wild animals was the lion. And the mightiest of them all was man. And so each representative living creature is taking part in God's will and worship as it was originally intended. When God created everything, everything was supposed to point to God. Everything was supposed to worship God. Everything was supposed to praise God. And then sin destroyed all of that. And so here in the throne room is kind of a restoration to what was supposed to be. But John isn't done describing these creatures. You got one that looks kind of like a lion, one kind of looks like an ox, one kind of looks like... Um, uh, an eagle, one kind of looks like a man, and they got eyeballs all over their bodies. Verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So they look like these four different creatures, they got eyeballs everywhere. They each have six wings, the implication being they're flying all around the throne. And constantly, without fail, these eyeballs everywhere, these wings, 
Constantly, they are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, this description and what they're saying brings to mind something that was already brought to mind because of the throne room itself. Isaiah chapter 6 is a description of some angels around the throne of God, also with six wings, also constantly saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah calls them uh, uh, seraphim. These eyes that are around these creatures, the best we can determine is it kind of brings to mind of they see everything. If they have eyes all over them, they see everything. Nothing is hidden from them. Nothing is hidden from them, and because they can see everything in the presence of God, their natural response is worship. They're seeing everything in God's presence, seeing everything God does, and their response is worship. Constantly, day and night, they never cease, it says, offering never-ending worship. Look at the next few verses. And whenever the living creatures, which, how often is it? They give praise? All of the time. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their thrones, or their crowns, before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So before the throne of God, praise and worship are constantly offered. That's the thing, is when you're in the presence of God, praise and worship have to constantly be offered. You cannot be in the presence of God and not have praise and worship offered to him. And so here, all of these elders, these four living creatures, and, and praise and worship are constantly being offered to him. And those crowns of victory that the elders are wearing, they take off and they set before the throne. The victory they have attained, they set and they offer to God himself. Everything that he has created is represented in this description ends up offering praise and worship. I mean, which we get in other parts of Scripture that say at one point, one day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's the image we're getting here, in the throne of God. Uh, let's start into chapter 5 here. So uh, this has just been a brief description, as John can best do it, of what he's seeing in the throne. And then action starts to take place. Verse 1. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, in the right hand, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So he sees a scroll in the right hand of the one on the throne. So this is God. And in the right hand of God is this a scroll sealed with seven seals. Now, there's a bunch of ways to seal scrolls back in the day. Uh, there was a way you could seal a scroll to where you break the first seal and you could open it, and there was another seal under the opening that would seal the next section. And as we're going to see in the next few chapters, that's kind of the way this one was arranged. Um, and so the, the God 
has this, this scroll in his right hand, which signifies it's important. It's, it's, it's importance. It's in his right hand, not his left. The right hand was the hand of importance, the, uh, the hand of uh, value and worth. And it's written on the inside and out. Um, so it was a special kind of paper they used, papyrus, to uh, be able to write on both sides. There was another kind of paper they had back then, but you could only write on one. If you wrote on the other side, it kind of broke apart. Uh, and so if it's written on both sides, that means there's a lot of stuff in this scroll that needs to be uh, known, that needs to be reported on. And what's John been told? That he, John's been told he's about to see a bunch of stuff, that God's about to show him a bunch of stuff, and he needs to write it all down. And so being in the throne room, he's seeing everything he's seeing, and he's writing it all down as best he can. And then he sees in the hand of God a scroll that's written on both sides. And so John's thinking, okay, I need to know what's written on that scroll so that I can do what Jesus told me to do and write everything down. If that scroll isn't opened, then I'm not going to know what's in it, then I can't write down what's in it, then I can't obey what Jesus told me to do. I can't do the very thing that I was... Uh, instructed to do, commissioned to do in being brought to heaven. And so this is all flying through, through John's mind as he's up there in heaven, this angel calling out, who is worthy to open the scroll? Saying, there's no one here who can open this thing. A mighty scroll, a mighty angel is, is declaring this. We don't get the name of the angel, we just know that he's mighty in some capacity. Um, look at verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look in it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, that's excluding God himself. The idea is God is the one who has taken the scroll and written it. And somebody else is supposed to come and supposed to open it. And so it, it's not that God can't open the scroll. It's that none of the created beings there have been found worthy to open the scroll. And so John begins to weep loudly because his whole purpose, his whole instruction from God cannot be fulfilled because there's nobody worthy enough to open this thing. And so John begins to weep. God told me to do something. Jesus told me to do something specific. And I can't do it because nobody can, nobody can open that scroll. Nobody can open it. Nobody in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. I mean, no heavenly being, no being on earth, no being under the earth, no, no dead being is worthy to open the scroll. Living, dead, human, angel, none of them are worthy to open this thing. However, those in the throne room know something that John doesn't. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. So there's a lamb there that John hadn't seen before. It doesn't say the lamb entered the throne room. It says, John says, I see it. So the idea is the lamb was there the whole time. John just didn't see the lamb. Maybe it was the power, the awe, you know, the awesomeness of God's throne that he just did not look there and see the lamb next to the throne. But the lamb was there, and he just didn't notice it yet. Now he sees this lamb. The lamb was standing. It was standing as though it had been slain. It had seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out 
into all the earth. So John is told by the elder in verse 5 that there is one who is worthy to open the scroll. And this one is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. Lion of the tribe of Judah references something uh, uh, back in the book of Genesis, uh, speaking to this moment. This phrase, Lion of the tribe of Judah, that is only used here in all of the New Testament. He's the, the powerful Messiah. His victory proves his worthiness. But he's also called the Root of David. Uh, which is similar to a passage from Isaiah chapter 11 talking about the stump of David or the root of David, descendant of David, uh, emphasizing the royal line of the Messiah, of Jesus. But then John says, I see this lamb and the lamb is standing there, but the lamb is standing as though he has been slain, like a dying lamb. So the symbol of victory, the symbol of power, appears to be dying. It's, it, 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 you know, it, these things seem to contrast each other. He's the victor, he's the conqueror, but it looks like he's dying there. He's been mortally wounded. And mortally wounded, he says, a sacrificial lamb. It has been slain. But it's got seven horns, seven eyes, and those are the seven spirits of God. Which the seven spirits of God are the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is within this one. This is the full Holy Spirit. So this is Jesus. Uh, this, this imagery of the lamb fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah 53 that says, like a lamb that has been led to slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So this is the sacrificial lamb. This is Jesus who died so we could go to heaven and look at what the lamb does, coming out from um, the throne, or next to the throne there, verse 7. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So Jesus goes up and he removes this scroll from the hand of God. So if you really think about it, because Jesus is God, the scroll never leaves possession of God. Jesus goes and takes it from God, so God is taking it from himself there uh, to, to open it. In that moment, there's, there's a breakout of worship that takes place. The elders all of a sudden have instruments of worship, these harps, uh, but they also have bowls of prayers, incense of prayer. Uh, which is written about in Psalm 141, let my prayers be an incense before you. But it's, it's, it's this imagery that's so fascinating to me. Golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So bowls of incense were, were, were you know, incense were burned to, uh, the idea was that it would go up and be a pleasing aroma to God. And so these bowls of the prayers of all Christians of all time are constantly held in the presence of God as a pleasing aroma to him. So every prayer you've ever prayed are in the throne room of God right now. He values them that much that they're constantly before him being offered to him as an offering in his presence. So though Christians are not always very much valued here on earth, our prayers are so valuable to God 
that he keeps them forever in his presence. Constantly, never out of his presence, never leaves his presence. Like some of you, the thing you value the most is your phone, and it never leaves your presence. It's always in your pocket, always in your purse, always in your hand. It's always there. The thing that God values are our prayers. Our prayers, our communication, representations of our relationship with him. Always in his presence. He has them there. Look at verse 9. So these elders, these four living creatures, it says they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. A new song. New songs are sung here and in chapter 14 of Revelation. Um, that's a reference actually to a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 42. Sing a new song to the Lord. A new song. The idea of a new song is that no song that has been written so far can do justice to this moment. This moment and what God is doing requires a new song to be written. There's no other song that can, that can adequately offer the worship for this moment. It's got to be brand new. No other song that's meant for some other situation can be appropriate for this moment. And in Christ's worthiness here, it says... You're worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were, because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So because Jesus died and rose from the dead, that is the only reason he's worthy to take the scroll. His death and resurrection, because of who he is as God, he's worthy to take the scroll because of what it's going to introduce in the coming chapters. And you have made them, the people who believe, kingdom and priests. And they shall reign on the earth. The, the authority and unification of believers is only possible because of our relationship with God. Now look at this, 11 and 12. Then I looked. So again, all this is here. John just hadn't seen it yet, right? He saw the throne. He saw the elders. Uh, he saw the, the Holy Spirit. He saw the Lamb. And now he's, he's looking around and he's seeing more now that he didn't notice was there before. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So the voice of the angels, it's singular, right? I heard uh, around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, he says, the voice, singular, one voice of many angels, myriads, myriads, thousands and thousands, a vast multitude that he can't count. It's so massive, he cannot count. He's counted the 24 elders. Uh, he's counted the four living creatures. He's counted the, the seven spirits. He, but this is so many beings that he can't count them. And so he describes it, myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands. Possibly saying, we don't have 
an adequate number of numbers to describe how many beings he is seeing. That, that word myriad actually literally means innumerable, like infinity. Like when you were a kid and y'all were trying to one-up each other, do you ever have the one kid who would say infinity and the kid who would say infinity plus one? Maybe that was you. Uh, but that's the idea here. This is innumerable is what he's seeing. The angels then list seven perfection, seven expressions of worship of, what Jesus, uh, of which Jesus is worthy. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. So worthiness of worship lies with Jesus alone. Look at these last two verses. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So Revelation 4 ends with God being worshiped. Revelation 5 ends with Jesus being worshiped. Uh, every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, all the things that are in them. He, John's emphasizing the inclusivity of everything that is in existence, praising God. Every created thing recognizes the Lamb's worthiness here. And the four living creatures that have been saying this song repeatedly, holy, holy, holy. Now they say something new. They say, amen. It is true. It is absolutely true. And we have this worship link between God and Jesus. They're both the same, one and the same. And they both receive the same worship here. And now, what, we, what John sees in Revelation 4 and 5 really should be the filter through which we read the rest of the book of Revelation. A lot of us see the book of Revelation as something scary. And so we don't want to think about the end times much. It seems very complicated and difficult and uncertain. And it's something that if we get too far in it, then we get confused and we don't know where we are or what's going on. But the filter through which we should read all of Revelation is what it's solely about. And that's what we see here in Revelation 4 and 5. The very first thing John sees in his vision in heaven, and that is worship. Revelation is all about worship. From beginning to end, it's all about worship. Revelation 1, Jesus shows up, first thing John does is worship. Revelation 3, 4 and 5, all we're seeing is worship in God's presence, in God's throne room. Worship needs to be both words and actions. Back in Revelation chapter 4, what did the elders do? They acted in worship by kneeling down and offering their thrones or their crowns, and they spoke in worship. It was both words and action. If our worship is just words, that's not complete worship. If we say one thing as though it's worshipful and then do the opposite, live a separate way from how we're speaking to God, or speak a separate way in one moment than another, then we're not truly worshiping. God actually said it in scripture, and it was quoted again later on. They worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Worship is supposed to encompass everything that we have. Words, actions, thoughts, deeds, motivations. The book of Revelation is all about worship. 
But the thing about worship, worship is more than music. Some of us have, have hijacked the word worship. And when somebody says worship, what comes to our mind is music. Worship, music, it's a category in our music streaming services. Worship. But if we relegate worship to just music, we're limiting what God intended worship to be. Music should be worship, absolutely. But you notice in the description of the throne room, there's all this worship, and it's not till the very end that we get music. Music is there, new song, harps. But it's not till all this other stuff took place that music shows up. Worship, or music should be a part of our worship, absolutely. But if we relegate worship to just music, we're missing out on what God intended complete worship to be. Worship is so much more. Worship really, worship is a lifestyle. It's not a momentary experience. I had a moment of worship. It's a lifestyle. So because it's a lifestyle, worship has to be a decision we make. Worship doesn't happen by default. Uh, I should say, worship of God does not happen by default. We can give our attention and our money and our time and our dedication to a wide variety of things. And as sinful people, our default is sinful things, prideful things. And so when we give our attention and our dedication and our money to all of those other things and none of it to God, we end up worshiping those things and not God. So it has to be an intentional decision that we do in order to worship God. I mean, think about, think about getting in shape, working out, exercising, eating right. That's not our default. Our default is a ball of bluebell. Amen? Cookie two-step, if you want to go to, if you want to experience heaven on earth, you get you a bowl of cookie two-step. tell you right now, Walmart was out the other day, and so we had to settle for cookies and cream, which was still pretty good. But cookie two-step will take you right there. I'm just telling you right now. Let me give you a little secret. Write it down in your notes. Walmart cookie two-step. Mother's Day's next week. Make sure you stock up. But anyway, that's way off base. Uh, but it is amazing. We're going to have bluebell in all kinds of flavors in heaven. I'll just tell you right now. Um, where was I? <laughs> Worship is a lifestyle decision. So getting in shape, you're not going to do it by default. You don't want to get up and exercise. Anybody intentionally want to get up and exercise in the morning? Your default is to sleep a little more. If you get up, I mean, to start off, I mean, if you, if you make a lifestyle of exercise and working out, then yes, you're going to start, you're going to want to start doing it. Because of the experience, because of how it makes you feel, because of how you feel afterwards, because you like the results, because you like being in it, in the part of it. But when you first start now, you don't want any of it. Any. I remember in college when I would run with my Marine roommate, Joe, and we would, he would make me get up and go run. I hated it. I didn't want to do it, any of it. And we'd end up running seven miles. And I'm thinking, Joe, you are the worst friend I've ever had in my life. But after we've been doing it for a while, it wasn't so bad. After we've been doing it for a while, I kind of liked it. And I realized he wasn't trying to torture me. He was trying to help me. And I got better and better and better. 
Don't ask me to run now, though. I haven't run in like 20 years, so it's been a long time. But back then, it was, it was a good experience. And the same thing with a worship lifestyle. It takes intentional decision to do it on a repeated basis. It takes practice. It takes training in your mind to do it. Your next conversation with that salesman on the phone, you may not be very worshipful because they charged you an extra service fee on your bill that is not right and unjust and they need to be told this and you want to talk to their supervisor and their supervisor. But in that moment, the decision to be worshipful in how you speak has to be intentional because it's not our default. How you train up your kids, how you speak to your neighbors, how you talk to your parents or your teachers, how you invest your time in the summer, how you invest your time every day. It's only going to be worshipful if it's intentional. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult because the enemy is going to fight against you all along the way because he didn't want any of that. But it's got to be a, a continual, it, it takes continual effort to do it. Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 12. Verse 1, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. A sacrifice that you make of your life every day. And the idea there as a living sacrifice is that it's everything you do. All your thoughts from the moment you wake up till the moment you fall asleep. How you speak to the people you interact with throughout the day. How you think about those people throughout the day. As you're scrolling and you see that name of that one person, how you think about that person, is that worshipful? How you treat each other. How you interact. How much joy comes out of you throughout the day. Is it worshipful in what you are doing and what you are thinking and what you are speaking? Worship really, though, if we break it down, Worship is faithfulness to the Lord. If we're faithful to the Lord in everything, we will be worshipful because faith is worship-filled. Worship is faithfulness in all areas of life, even when it's difficult, even when things in our life aren't going the way we want and they're not falling into place and it doesn't feel like God's going to come through this time in enough time with everything we need, but he always does. Worship is, faithful, is faithfulness even in those moments. I mean, like we said a minute ago, look back at those seraphim, those creatures with the six wings and the eyeballs everywhere. They see everything God does, and their natural response is worship. The more we understand about God, the more we will worship. The more we understand about God, the more we will worship. Here you have these creatures around the throne seeing and understanding more about God than I do, than I, than I will until I'm there in his presence in heaven. And their only response constantly is worship. So the more we see, the more we understand about God, the more we will worship in all areas of our life, in all avenues of our life. And it will begin to reconstruct our brain. See, I don't know if you know this. I, I saw this on, a, on a, uh, an article a number of years ago. But our brain has these grooves in it. And these grooves in our brain are formed over time from repeated habits. 
And it takes great effort to form new pathways, new grooves in our brains. It takes repeated intentional effort to accomplish it. Paul said, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind or self-discipline, self-control. That comes from the Lord. So if we lean into him and have trust in him and have faith in him, he will help guide us into those new neural pathways. He will help guide us into new habits of being worship-filled in every avenue of our life. You see, when we have limited worship in our lives, when we have limited worship and it doesn't encompass all of us, all of our words, all of our thoughts, all of our actions, everything that we do, our habits, our, our streaming habits, limited worship comes from a limited perspective of God. Limited worship comes from a limited understanding or, or a limited trust of God. If our thoughts and words and our actions are ever less than worshipful, then perhaps our perspective is a little messed up. Our perspective might be a little askew. Because fuller worship comes from fuller understanding. And you understand more about God the more time you spend with him. So you spend more time with him, you understand more about him, you understand more about him, you worship him more. And so the more time you spend with God, the more you will instinctively worship him. And if you really break it on down, and think about it. Heaven will be worship-filled. So the more you worship now, the more time you spend with God now, the more you understand about God now and fill your time with worship as a lifestyle, the more prepared for heaven you will be. And so that's the question. Do you want to be prepared for heaven? Are you prepared for heaven? Prepared for heaven, first of all, in knowing Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus as God's son? That he died and rose from the dead. All your sins forgiven so you can go to heaven. Are you worship filled? Are your thought processes throughout the day anxiety laden or worship filled? Frustrated or worship filled? Angry? Bitter, irritated, sinful, prideful, or worship-filled? I mean, I'll confess to you right now, as the preacher, a lot of times mine are not worship-filled, pride-filled. Make it about me, trying to control the situation, trying to make it how I want it. Even if it's subconscious, it's hardwired to our nature. But what God wants us to be is worship-filled. That's what revelation is all about. It's not scary, it's approachable because it's worship-filled. It's all about worship. God's trying to help us in our lives fulfill our design, which is worship, pointing to him, attention on him, money invested in him, our, our uh, conversations all about him. I had a guy that I knew one time, went to go see the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, sing and he was just amazed first of all I mean just at their 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 skill and most of them can't read music but he said but what really amazed me is after the concert they all came out 
into the crowd so we could talk to him. And he said, I talked to about 25, 30 of them. And he said, I guarantee you within 90 seconds of a conversation with all of them, without exception, the conversation came back to Jesus and what he had done for them and how he had brought them to that point and how he had delivered them from such and such and how he had blessed them and how he had done what he has done so far in their lives. He says, I was amazed and convicted all at the same time. How worship-filled is your life today? It's not easy by any stretch of the imagination. But it's the reason we were created, to have this relationship with God and to fill our lives with a worship of him. And the more worship-filled we are, the more prepared for heaven we will be. So are you prepared to walk into heaven today?